Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. In just a second, I'm going to be joined by Matt Taibbi. But first, I wanted to tell you that today we uploaded exclusive content on our podcast feed for all of our podcast listeners. It has insider details on our show, my thoughts on how our first 18 months on the air has gone. We've done 18 months of the podcast and um, I don't know how many months since since September now with Sirius. Um, And uh, we've included a story about a recent interview we pulled. We did not air. Because the guest who champions themselves as a warrior for free speech and non-divisive politics, right, lifting themselves above uh, divisive politics, demanded an edit right after the interview that we refused to comply with. Uh, Turns out the guest wasn't quite as courageous as they wanted our audience to believe. And we'll get into what happened after that. So you might find it interesting. Uh, It's short and sweet. And I think you'll enjoy it. Anyway, you can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts for free. And while you're there, you will find over 300 episodes. Our archives are all on our podcast feed. So go ahead and download, enjoy, follow the show so you can listen whenever you want. If you're not able to catch us live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111. Joining me now, one of my favorite guests, Matt Taibbi, editor of the TK News Substack. Matt, great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Megan. All right. So let's start with, I'm sure this is going to come as a great comfort to you, that now the Department of Homeland Security is going to crack down on disinformation on the Internet. (laughs) Okay, that's one of their homelands. These guys used to be protecting us from radical Islamists who wanted to unleash terror attacks on us here at home, or so they said. And now they are attacking us (laughs) as disinformation purveyors, the random American citizen who has access to a computer or a microphone. And the chief... The chief of this effort is going to be a woman named Nina Jankowitz, who will be the executive director. As far as I can tell so far, her most um, notable accomplishment is calling the Hunter Biden laptop a, quote, fairy tale, a, quote, Trump campaign product. And this is the person who now will be in charge of regulating what is and is not, quote, disinformation. What do we make of it? Well, this has been going on for five or six years now, there's been, ever since Donald Trump was elected, um, a a pretty concerted effort on the part of uh, mainstream politicians, really in both parties, but particularly in the Democratic Party, um, to make the internet a place uh, that that will be under some kind of uh, governmental control. And this this began in uh, 2017, when we had members of the Senate calling up um, executives from Facebook, Google, uh, and Twitter to the Hill, and essentially demanding that they come up with strategies to prevent what they called the foment of discord. Uh, back then, the- <laughs> That's bread um, and butter. The, right, exactly. The, the boogeyman back then was, was Russian disinformation. Um, then it became hate speech. Then it was disinformation about uh, the pandemic, um, you know, now we're circling back to uh, Russian disinformation with regard to the Ukrainian conflict. And, you know, I think the problem is we're, we're in a generation of people who 
they agree that there's a problem with disinformation in the media landscape, but they don't understand that um, the biggest uh, lies are always official lies. And the only real defense against that is, is uh, free speech. And so they, they want this top down system of, uh, of uh, control, which I think is very, very dangerous. Mm, that's so true. If you hear the Barack Obama remarks from late last week, he was longing nostalgically for the days in which it was just ABC, NBC and CBS and information was controlled. Right. We didn't have all these Internet hacks and trolls out there pushing so-called disinformation. And I'm sure that was a much more delightful time for people in the position like he had at the White House. But Think of all the lies that have been told to us over the years from people in that post that the evening news, for whatever reason, went along with or had an incentive not to check too far into. Uh, And today it's no different. You know, today it's like, okay, do we not think that the people at Fox were manipulated by Trump? Do we not think that the people at every other network are manipulated by Biden? Like, that's the way it works. Right. Uh, But the problem is people have an alternative now. They have a way to get around that, which they didn't have before, as as uh, President Obama noted. And and I remember this pretty graphically because I was a campaign reporter uh, in 2004 and 2008, back in those um, alleged salad days, or I guess towards the end of them. Uh, And I would be on the bus listening to journalists talk about which candidates they, they they thought were serious or electable and which ones weren't. So, you know, you'd be in a bus full of CNN and, uh, and Fox and uh, MSNBC anchors, and they'd be scoffing at Dennis Kucinich saying, no, he's, we're not going to take him seriously. And then there would be some other candidate like John Kerry, like, oh, he's electable or, you know, and, and they made those judgments and they were important judgments because, you know, what they signaled to audiences back then, um, had an enormous uh, impact on how people voters behaved at the ballot box. It's different now. Like, you know, and ironically, Barack Obama was was a beneficiary. He was one of the first people to um, to lose the so-called invisible primary, uh, which of uh, donors, and still win the, the nomination. But then, when when Trump broke through in 2016, that was really when the chokehold of those networks. Uh, collapsed and they missed that. They just, they really do. Mm -hmm. And so how do we think this is going to work? I mean, this woman can't really crack down on, on anything like what the the DHS is going to come try to what censor what happens on your show, on this show, on your sub stack, like how on earth is this going to work? I don't know. I mean, but I think we've already seen that, that uh, they're, they'll go to pretty extraordinary lengths to try to have influence over um, uh, information that that's online. Um, We've seen in the last six years that there's been uh, pretty extraordinary cooperation between uh, the Senate, between uh, bodies like the CDC and, uh, and the FDA and platforms like uh, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. I mean, I, I did a story randomly about um a podcaster who was having trouble with uh with youtube and when i called them up for comment and asked them what they decided was how they decided what uh, what was in misinformation and what wasn't they just told me outright that they they made those decisions in consultation with federal agencies wow. so i think i think this is the the world we're going to be living in where we have a basically a privatized speech landscape 
but they're going to be political actors from the government that are going to be influencing the moderation decisions of those platforms. It's very, you know, we're we're going a lot closer to blatantly protected First Amendment speech. Like the, the, the reason Twitter and Facebook and YouTube can censor content is because they're not they're not the government. They're pretty close. <laughs> they're pretty close to having the power and certainly the fingerprints of the government all over their editorial decisions. But technically, still, the law does not recognize them as the equivalent of or certainly as an actual government actor. Not the case for DHS, that they're not allowed to censor our speech. So I don't really know what they think they can do, but uh, they may be sad to realize it's written right there in the First Amendment. They're not allowed to censor speech. There's a teeny tiny category they get to touch and the vast majority of what they're going to object to won't be in it. That's true, but somebody still has to do the test case. They have to to file that lawsuit uh, and win that First Amendment case. And, you know, who's going to do that? The, the reality is uh, these government agencies have already been um, meddling with speech uh, on private platforms, whether it's the FDA and the CDC, uh, in, you know, sort of encouraging platforms like YouTube to go by their guidelines and deciding what's misinformation and what isn't. Um, or it's the FBI, uh, which has been in consultation with some of these platforms about things like hate speech uh, and which groups um, might need cracking down on. So, yes, you're right. I, I think there's already a powerful First Amendment argument that that they've crossed a line, but that has to be challenged. And who's going to issue that challenge? Um, it, it's a very difficult road ahead. I mean, the, the possession is nine tenths of the law, and if they're already, if they're already mm. doing this, um, it has to be undone. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's illegal. Hmm. Well, speaking of possession being nine tenth, uh, tenths of the law, uh, people on the right half of the aisle are just the sane half. It's not just all righties. It's a lot of centrist lefties, too, um, are rejoicing that Elon Musk is taking over Twitter, is going to buy Twitter. And so it appears. And there's a stock problem at the moment. And people we have to keep our, our eye on the Twitter shares and on the Tesla shares because he does need money in order to buy it. Um, Peter Schiff came on and explained all that to us yesterday. I don't totally understand it, but it's not a done deal. It's not a totally done deal. He's very, very rich, but he does need his actual $44 billion or at least $21 billion of it to buy. So um, they're happy, but he's already taking crap from, I mean, all corners of Twitter and uh, the Twitter top executives, the, the chief legal officer, the general counsel was reportedly in tears when upon learning on Monday that he was actually going to close the sale, you know, that they had agreed to the sale. And Elon I guess, liked to tweet or took a shot at her yesterday um, and then took all sorts of crap in response, right? Like he, let's say he shared a meme Wednesday that mocked her response to accusations of the company's political bias. And it was this thing involving Tim Pool and Joe Rogan and when they all went on there and how she's got this circular reasoning and she denies viewpoint discrimination, but we all know they do it. And uh, this is the thing that, uh, you know, they, the, the, Twitter CEO from 2010 to 2015 response. What's going on? You're making an executive of the company you just bought the target of harassment and threats. Bullying is not leadership. And Elon kind of defended himself saying, what are, you know, what are you talking about? So this is the thing. He doesn't behave like your normal CEO or owner when he takes over these massive co corporations. You know, he's being sued right now for some of the tweets he sent out about Tesla. But this is how they get you. 
you offered your opinion. His opinion is that this woman is biased and has been wrongfully manipulating uh, content on Twitter. He said it publicly. The way they shut you down is how dare you? How dare you? Online harassment, sexual harassment, comments, threatening. Right. We talked about this yesterday with Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy, which is he said they smuggle in viewpoint discrimination through the guise of hate speech, threats, you know, words or violence, all of those principles, which are in active form at Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, and I'm one of the people who's uh, who's enjoying a, a Schadenfreude moment this week. Uh, you know, to watch the reaction to Musk uh, potentially buying Twitter because, I, first of all, I'm one of the few reporters who, for years now, has been covering the phenomenon of content moderation, uh, who took it seriously from the very beginning. Uh, warned that this was going to be a problem that was going to become a bigger and bigger part of American life. And I was laughed at by, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues, particularly like my left leaning colleagues, who I thought were free speech advocates, uh, you know, after the, the Alex Jones episode. Uh, which I thought was deeply troubling, not because I like Alex Jones, but because the the precedent of big companies like um, you know Apple and Facebook and Spotify getting together and making sort of an ex parte decision to to kick somebody off the internet that was a radically different approach to policing speech than what I grew up with, which is if you make a mistake, you get sued and there's an open forum and there's a process and it's, it's all transparent. Um, I think what, you know, what I said from the beginning, the, the issue isn't who is being censored. The issue is how it's being done. And if you're, if you were in favor of a handful of, mega wealthy executives back then kicking off people like Alex Jones and, um, you know, and then eventually Donald Trump off the internet, you can't now cry that there's a different billionaire who you just happen not to like um, sitting in that same chair and meddling with speech in a way that you don't like. You, you had to have objected on principle grounds before and they didn't. And so, um, you know, look, I don't have any sympathy for these people. Uh, they they had a chance to stand up for something like uh, speech principles once upon a time, and they didn't do it because they wanted to censor people. They just and, and now they're now they're feeling, uh, you know, a taste of their own medicine. Can let's talk about the Alex Jones case for one second, because I, you know, reported on all of that and lived through that in a weird way uh, myself. But I know very well that Alex Jones was in a weird place versus most people who get targeted on the Internet because he had been serially unleashing like very personal and in your home um, threats pretty much on purpose to the most sympathetic group of people in our country namely the Newtown grieving parents. So people who had their first graders shot to death in class kept getting harassed by his listeners who he kept telling to believe this was all a hoax, that it was made up. And the, one family had to go into hiding. Um, it was found in court that they had been receiving death threats by this lunatic inspired by Alex Jones. Many of them had been having to deal with the Alex Jones listeners for years 
in deeply painful ways. And honestly, Matt, it was like, <laughs> that's, I don't think you can compare that to, you know, James O'Keefe with his secret camera getting, you know, dishonest New York Times reporters saying something in a bar one way versus what they put in the pages of the Times another way. I just think he's in a class of his own. And it wasn't just the Newtown families. I could go down the list for you of people who have been actually hurt by people he intentionally inflamed. It's much closer legally to what we know as incitement, which is not protected speech. Well, I don't I don't think anything that he said with regard to Newtown was protected speech. And I, and I said that at the time. I also said I, I I think it was probably pretty obvious that he, he violated the terms of service of each one of those platforms. Uh, again, I, I had no interest in, in defending Alex Jones uh, on any grounds. The issue uh, for me had to do with the method, right? So it, once upon a time, the way we would have dealt with um, speech like Alex Jones was he would have been sued and, and the penalties the financial penalties would have been uh, so great that he probably would not have emerged with a career at the end of it. I mean, that's that's typically that's how those too. things. That's right, that's happening. They, they, it, they've it, just it, it took a, a long time against him. Right, it, it, and 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 people were impatient uh, to 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 go through that process, and I understand that. Like, look, you, the, the, as this is happening, none of those none of those private businesses want to ha- want to deal with that. I totally get that. The problem is. Is that is that by doing this, they they open the door for a new a new kind of speech policing that didn't involve any kind of open and transparent process. That all these companies got together, clearly coordinated. You know, they all did it at the at the, at the same time, and they essentially decided, you know, this person is going to no longer be on the internet. Um, so that opens the door. You know. The next thing is going to be O'Keefe. And then before you know it, it's the Babylon B. And and that was that was the issue that I had. If, if, no, I mean, if that you're... is what happened. That's why it's hard. That's why it's hard, because all, for years they'd been censoring like these radical Islamists who wanted to show people how to build bombs and commit terrorist attacks. And I've got zero problem with that censorship. Go for it. We don't need that shit on the Internet. And, you know, people will die as a result of that. And I just that's indisputably not. Okay, to me, I don't see anybody defending that censorship by the big tech companies. But that's um, see, that's not even censorship because those things are actually against the law. Like you, you know, you, you, the the authorities can come in and they can stop actual incite, imminent incitement to violence. Well, no, they can but, but I'm talking about if I but if I just sit in front of the camera and I show you how to make a dirty bomb, mm-hmm. is, that's not against the law. No, it's not. But, you know, and that's and neither is hate, hate speech. But I know that's part of part of what the American experiment is all about. They, they raise that bar very, very high for a reason. If you go back and look at those cases, um, you know, in the Supreme Court that, you know, the, that decided what what's legal speech and what is not. They they they, you know, made it pretty clear that they were willing to tolerate some pretty extreme stuff. Uh, in order to protect the pr- the principle of free speech. No, which I is agree why, with that. But that's yeah. why this is so dicey, because if I were running YouTube, I would not allow that. I would not allow videos of how to make a dirty bomb uh, to be posted, even if there weren't. I mean, and it's not it's it's not 
unprotected. That is protected speech. But am I going to let somebody sit there and and show people how to create that that level of dangerous weapon that could kill a bunch of people on my platform? I'm not because I'm not a government actor and I don't have to. So I would draw some lines, but I don't know. And would I have allowed the Alex Jones speech against the Newtown families over and over and over? I don't know. I mean, it's very sticky, right? Because like there's there's a great there are gradations on this. And if you wind up canceling the Babylon Bee, you've gone too far. If you cancel James O'Keefe, you've gone too far. So I just feel like why aren't there adults in the room who can distinguish between genuinely dangerous behavior that can and has gotten people hurt or killed. And these false claims of words are violence that, you know, like claiming what what was said about this Twitter general counsel is somehow the same as this other stuff. You know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm as close as, as one gets to a free speech absolutist. I uh, but even even I, you know, gr- uh, grew up uh, understanding that there were whole ranges of things that as a journalist, I can't say, right. You know, we're trained that we can't commit libel. We can't, we can't, uh, incite people. We can't do a whole, uh, list of things. And we have to run things through lawyers before we publish and all that. And that's not the case in the internet. And I understand that, that we have to come up with some kind of process for dealing with difficult speech. My criticism throughout this, this, uh, this period has been that a lot of the people who are looking at this problem, I don't think they're really interested in solving those dif- difficult issues that you talk about. Like, if you ask me, I, I, I think, you know, for something like Alex Jones or, or, you know, making bombs, I think there should be some kind of transparent, open process where, you know, you get to actually see how these things are decided. But mm. what you, what you, you've seen instead is you've seen a lot of politicians who seem very, very anxious to use the, um, you know, quasi monopolistic power of these platforms to push speech in in a certain direction. They're attracted uh, by that power. Uh, And, and that's, that's where the danger is because as soon as soon as somebody sees that, Oh, wow, if I just flick a switch, this person's gone. <laughs> they're going to be tempted to do to to take the next step and find the next person they don't like and 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 that's that's how you end up with the Babylon but, Bee. But here's the problem. So here so okay, let's say that they do they do make it more transparent. You know, we're going to be more open about how we ban somebody or what have you. That's they don't care. They don't care about saying you Babylon Bee said Rachel Levine is a man. And that's hate speech. That's harassing. We have a policy against harassing someone based on their gender identity. That's what you're doing in the view of of us. And then flash to the trans person on their board who says, hateful, you have no idea the suicide rate, the right, you get that. Therefore, you're banned. And I don't think they'd have any qualms about owning what what we see as viewpoint discrimination, but what they see as just this universal non-bullying campaign. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I would just just quickly like to point out that when when they started this campaign, um, obviously a lot of the people who uh, were um, sort of discriminated against first, and you talk about viewpoint discrimination, a lot of them were on the right, but a lot of them were on the left too. I mean, you, the some of the companies, uh, the media outlets that saw enormous drops in traffic when uh, companies like Google were told 
um, that they had to prevent the foment of discord. They were outlets like Truth Dig and the World Socialist website and even Democracy Now!, um, be, because the, the, the new algorithms essentially just favored large carriers over small ones. So, uh, I just wanted to point that out no, that it's not, uh, but uh, no, I agree with you, but I, I, I do think that there has to be some way to do this, uh, that mimics the effectiveness, um, of the litigation based system that we had. Uh, dating back to New York Times v. Sullivan in 1963. Um, you know, as a journalist growing up in that era, um, I always felt like the system worked extremely well because the rules were, were very clear about what we were and were not allowed to publish. Um, there was a pretty high bar that you had to meet to prove that somebody had committed libel uh, or slander. Uh, and yet, when there was a real egregious violation, it was usually, if not career ending, close to it. And but you, um, but you just raised a good point, though, Matt. You raised a good point because back in those days, you know, this is this is the Barack Obama golden days. And, and in this way, I see the point. There was a self-imposed high bar of class, of dignity, of not you know, unfairly targeting one individual over and over or creating a circumstance where somebody could literally get hurt, you know, there, there you wouldn't have had Alex Jones in print, you know, in the in the Times and in the Post back then, those papers were more respectable. Yeah, sure. They still had a left wing bias, but they were nothing to what they are today. You know, they were definitely more committed to trying to be fair. And then they would not have allowed these types of things to appear in their papers. So it was sort of a better approach on both sides. They were less censorious, but they had a higher bar for what could be printed and, you know, who could be targeted in the first place. Well, that's what I, I mean, I think that's what we're all striving for is a system where um, where there's kind of sensible uh, self-censorship before you you print something. I mean, I, I think the processes that we went through uh, before we publish things in, in major magazines, I always thought that was that was a good process that we um, weren't afraid to use strong language. We weren't afraid to say things about people if we had a strong opinion. But when it came down to facts, uh, you know, we had we had to be accurate. We had to check. Um, and if it was a close call, we usually erred on the side of caution and left it out of, of the paper uh, mm. because the penalties were were, were high. Now, the, on the Internet, there's nothing like that right now. No, and, and there's so plenty there's of people kind of who don't do any fact checking at all. No, there's no fact checking. And, and this is bled into, quote unquote, mainstream media, which is um, which is learned that its audiences now forgive mistakes as long as they're in the right direction. Mm. So they're not careful anymore. They, 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 they make constant factual errors. Uh, they don't worry about it. They they don't worry about being sued for libel uh, nearly as much as they uh, would have once upon a time. Again, I I'm not particularly sympathetic to Kyle Rittenhouse, but I was shocked by the way he was described in the first days of that story. Like there there were major news outlets that were calling him a white supremacist. The president was the calling president. him that, uh, uh, and or the sorry the future president. And and again, once upon a time, you you would have needed something to go on in order to use that terminology. Uh, and they didn't. They just did it because the the landscape has changed so much. Um, 
so yeah, we, we, it's it's a big problem. I understand that there has to be something that uh, done to fix all the craziness on the internet, or at least address it. Uh, but what they're doing instead, I think, is is they want to leave the system in place um, so that they can push speech in a certain direction. And that that that's the sense that I, the clear sense yeah. that I get from. I mean, I think if you asked me to sit there and say, what's the difference between, you know, threatening messages that actually could harm, you know, physically harm somebody, forget emotional harm. That's just we can't deal with that. Uh, But physical harm, I could tell the difference between a tweet that did that and something that just expressed a controversial view. And so, you know, I feel like maybe what Elon Musk needs is people who are just less ideological, you know, people who are committed to the to free speech as a principle, but but people who are reasonable and don't want to see, you know, people get hurt unnecessarily because you've got some lunatic on the Internet continuing to dock somebody and call for violence or, you know, stretch, come close enough to the line. But they don't have ideological diversity at these companies. And, you know, I've told my audience before, Matt, I went out to Silicon Valley in 2016. It was 2016 right before the election. And I met with the heads of a lot of these companies. I was on the campuses. I was meeting with the top executives and they wanted to know my thoughts on how they could do better at what they recognize as their own ideological bias. And I told them all the same thing, which is get more ideological diversity on your boards, get more ideological diversity in your C-suite. And certainly if you if you have any sort of a monitoring or a censorship group, make sure it's totally even, totally even, right? You you can't just have a bunch of people on one side of the aisle making all these calls and not expect that to be reflected in your decision making. And guess what? Nobody listened to me. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. No. And again, I think this gets, gets to the fact that although some people ask you for your advice, mostly people don't you know, want want to do that kind of self-reflection. Mostly they want to exercise that authority in a, in a certain way, um, which is unfortunate. And you, the, the clear line between threats and opinion, there's lots of stuff that's already illegal um, that's allowed on these platforms. And, uh, you know, the, the platforms would do well if they were, just, if they just focused on, well, let's eliminate the stuff that we, that's already against the law. Uh, let's let's try to cut down on libel. Let's try to cut down on threats because those are already against the law, right? We mm-hmm. we, we don't need a special, um, you know, new policy to to deal with that. There are laws about that. Uh, where they get in trouble is where they try to they try to establish things like factual truth and say that something is is disinformation or misinformation because that's a moving target that you basically can't get right in a way that's going to be fair. Um, And, you know, or if they're trying to define something that's an opinion as being beyond the pale and abusive um, and hurtful, like hurtfulness isn't a standard that can be applied in any way. I I think that's rational. I I agree. It it just, it just, it just can't hold up. I agree. um, As something that's consistent. That's why it's like, okay, well, what is bullying? Uh, Perhaps if there's some large campaign, you know, designated at one person that just 
completely upends the person's life. It would have to be massive, massive, not just a few tweets from the Babylon Bee that gets, you know, a bunch of likes. Maybe. I don't know. But otherwise, like we can't really do feelings. We can't do feelings. We can definitely take account for physical threats, but words are violence and my feelings are hurt. Stay off the Internet. It's a cesspool. If you don't know that, you know, I'm sorry, but big reveal. And by the way, you can get smartphones that don't have an Internet button on them. Like there are ways of protecting yourself in modern day America. If you just choose not to engage with forums that, you know, are hurtful and toxic, they are under Elon. They will be right now. Twitter's totally toxic. I love all these libs who are like, it's rainbow and unicorns. Walk a mile in my shoes on the Internet while you people run it because it's been disgusting. Yeah, and and totally humorless and and miserable experience for for, for quite some time now. Um, I I also I also think they get into in, in incredible trouble when they try to police misinformation and disinformation um, because I think most journalists understand. I mean, Megan, you, you know this in the first days of any news story, there's always some error baked into the reporting mm. that only comes out later, right? Yep. So if you, you know, if you have some kind of star chamber of fact checkers who are declaring this or that to be the truth and everything else needs to be wiped out, um, inevitably what's, what's going to happen is you're going to have fiascos like the, the lab league business where, uh, you know, for some initial period they're going to declare well this is this is an untruth this is a this is conspiracy theory oh but six six months later it turns out it might be true and like and the covid the inst- lab leak theory right yeah exactly and when, once you do that you lose all credibility with audiences and now what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to trust um what you call the official trusted version of reality they're going to distrust that even more once you make a couple of mistakes like that, and they're going to drift even more towards conspiracy theories. So that that for me is like that's a that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how news consumers work. If you if you try to weed out conspiracy theories and crackpots and all these other things uh, in the name of truth, what you end up with most of the time um, is more of that. Uh, and and I, I think that that's not very well understood. Um, I'm going to squeeze in a break, but I'll read this from uh, the the very well worth your time uh, substack from Taibi. This site, talking about Twitter, used to be fun, funny, and a great tool for exchanging information. Now it feels like what the world would be if the eight most vile people in Brooklyn were put in charge of all human life. A giant, hyper-pretentious thought Starbucks. (laughs) So good. All right, stand by, Matt. Um, we're with Matt Taibbi after a quick break. Uh, loving this conversation. And we'll tell you about Dr. Fauci's reversal and what Biden's doing that Trump never did before. Back with me, back with me now, Matt Taibbi, editor of the TK News Substack. All right. So the reason I stumbled on the intro is because I've got Joe Biden in my head. This just in. <laughs> Uh, he made remarks this morning that Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Carton, uh, Cotton of Arkansas, is tweeting out as, quote, alarming because of the little bit of slurring and a lot of stumbling. Take a listen for yourself. We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> kleptocracy. And klep- the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> 
but these are bad guys. Oh my God, Matt. I too find it alarming. Well, I, I told this story before, but, uh, this was um, trying to cover Biden's issues on that front was actually one of the reasons I ended up moving to Substack <laughs> uh, because I was covering a, I was doing a feature on, um, on Biden on the campaign trail for Rolling Stone. And I was noticing what everybody else was noticing. Like this guy's having trouble getting through sentences every time he has to ad lib he gets lost he forgets where he is he forgets what what the question is and i called back some of the people um i had talked to for a story about uh the potential use of the 25th amendment to get donald trump removed on uh on the grounds that he was mentally incompetent if you remember there was a big drive to do that and i was assigned to cover that story and lots of psychiatrists were, were, were very happy to talk about that then but nobody would talk about the biden issue um and i i just realized that we were in a completely different media environment where you know certain things were just sort of off limits and um i i think it was we did kind of the country a disservice by not talking about this a whole lot before he was elected right did you see the title 42 thing last week no. Oh, oh, you've got to see it. We have it. So he was asked about, I think, about Title 42. I, my, my team will refresh me whether the question was about 42 or the mask mandate being struck down. It, it was one or the other. Hold on. Go ahead. OK, so the question was about the mask mandate being struck down by a federal district judge in Florida. And he answered it about Title 42 the covid immigration regulation that allows our our border agents to reject everyone um, who wants asylum. Just saying it's covid. Get out. So he gets totally confused about the two. They start meandering. He starts intertwining. Just take a listen. On Title 42, sir, are you considering delaying lifting Title 42? No, what I'm considering is continuing to hear from my uh, my. uh, First of all, there's going to be an appeal by the Justice Department, because as a matter of principle, we want to be able to be in a position where if, in fact, it is strongly concluded by the scientists that we need Title 42, that we'd be able to do that. But there has been no decision. My God. So you hear he's asked about the mask mandate. He he starts meandering all over about 42. He can't keep it straight vice versa. Neither can I right now, but (laughs) I'm not the president and I wasn't facing the reporters and he had to issue a cleanup later in a written statement. We've seen it happen time and time again. Yeah, it's it's certainly not reassuring uh, when you look up at the president of the United States and the emotion that's uh, being betrayed in in his eyes is terror right? because yes. he's not he's not quite sure what uh, what uh, the question is and or whether he's answering appropriately. Um, I've seen this with some other politicians in the past and and uh, but Biden got got worse quickly uh, in in the last election. And um, I, again, I, I think the reporters just kind of decided to not talk about it because well, they I had mean, already d- decided that he was going to be taking on Donald Trump and they didn't want to give him ammunition, which is, which I think was a, a huge mistake. Did those presidents last names rhyme with Megan? Because there was a real <laughs> issue with one of them in his second term that went on to become quite a news story. 
Right. Yeah. Well, Reagan was one of the ones I was thinking of. I, you know, I've seen it. I, I saw it with Boris Yeltsin when I lived in, in, in yeah, Russia. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the issues there might have been a little bit different, but, you know, <laughs> Caused by a similarly, he had, he had some cognitive issues. Um, but uh, but look, you know, the, the, this is what happens when reporters start messing with uh, things beyond their purview. Like our, our job is just to tell you like what we see and, yes. you know, worry about whether it's right or right or wrong. And then it's up to the public to figure out what they think about it. Um, what started to happen in 2016 when Trump came on the scene is re- reporters suddenly were like looking at news stories. Just to take an example, there was that issue with uh, Hillary Clinton not filling up her crowds, right? So she she was having trouble filling the halls. And reporters got together and they kind of silently decided not to make an issue out of that because they didn't want to make it look like her campaign was doing badly. Uh, but that ended up hurting her because it created a false sense of security in the campaign. Mm. And, and the, you know, instead of doing something to try to fix it, they just kept going and they ended up losing. So, you know, reporters should just, you know, tell us what they see and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. They, and, and they won't make they won't affect history in a negative way, at least that way. Well, and it's like, you know, when grandpa starts to lose his marbles, you know, when he starts to starts to go south, grandpa can be easily manipulated. You know, we don't do that because we love grandpa. But this is the sitting president of the United States. And we were promised somebody who wasn't going to be some far left wokester. And he has been. And we were promised somebody who was going to be the voice of reason. And he hasn't been. And we were promised somebody who said he was very skeptical of, quote, forgiving student loans because he understood the problems that would create and the fairness issues it would create. And now he's about to do it. And one wonders, what did I buy? What did I get? What who is running the show legitimately? Who is making these decisions? And if it is Joe Biden, who is manipulating him into these decisions? Because I'm not sure I elected them. Yeah. And that was another question, um, because there was so clearly a competency issue with Biden. Uh, there should have been a secondary news story, like who's actually going to be running the country if this guy gets elected. And there weren't a whole lot of those stories. I mean, I, I blame myself. I didn't I didn't really do it uh, either. But somebody needed to do that story and uh, and needs to do it now, too. Um, yeah. And we're not we're not really doing it. Uh, yeah. We, we know like that we know that there's some infighting, but we don't know. We don't know exactly how decisions are being made. Well, so Joe Biden is doing something that uh, Trump didn't do, and that is as the sitting president, he's about to go to the now, you know, reborn White House Correspondents Dinner, which is going to happen in Washington, D.C. this weekend. Cue the vomit emoji. Um, I've yeah, been, I know that. I've been. I call it the all, White House self congratulation dinner, but, but yeah, go it, ahead. <laughs> it's disgusting. They're awful. My favorite was yeah. uh, I went to one where. Um, Pamela Anderson was, she was, you know, they always invite these celebrities. George Clooney was there once. He was like the biggest star ever there, bigger than any president. Um, Pam Anderson was at one and uh, they said, so, you know, Ms. Anderson, what are you doing at the White House Correspondents' Dinner? And she said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was at the White Trash Correspondents' Dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Greatest thing ever to happen. That's great. That's great. So Good Biden's going to go. He's only going to sit. He's not going to have the dinner out of COVID fears. He wants to be responsible. He's not going to sit for the actual dinner. He's just going to go for the, you know, the, the humor and the roasts. I mean, that's what everybody wants to do. No one wants to sit for the damn dinner. So he's basically just 
you know, parachuting in for the comedian. But then turns out the comedian's Trevor Noah. So who wants to see that? Um, we all know what we're going to get. And the, the other sort of subline to all this, Matt, is that Dr. Fauci was supposed to go, but bailed because the, the four time vaccinated Fauci doesn't think this is safe. Yeah, I, I mean, that story is ridiculous on so many levels that it's it's just hard to even know where to begin. But the, <laughs> they've been consistently uh, irrational about this from the very beginning. Um, you, you know, the, the why, from the very start, uh, they were they were signaling to us that they didn't really think the vaccines worked. Um, you know, why did we have to stay in lockdown if the if the if the vaccines were effective? Well, it turned you know they just don't really believe in them, and I think they're sending mixed messages, which again gets back to the point of you know when people stop trusting you, that's when they drift even more towards conspiratorial interpretations of things. Um, so they, I think it sends a terrible message what he, what he's doing. It's so true, right? It's like, aren't the vaccines supposed to protect us from severe illness or death and reduce COVID to something rather mild that the average person can handle? Yes, is the answer. So why are they behaving like this is the very first form of COVID, which actually was more severe, far more than what we're dealing with now, Omicron, whatever, the second version of Omicron. Uh, why are they pretending like it's still that version and we have no vaccine and we have no therapeutics, right? They, they they aren't going out and living their lives. Or maybe it's just all one big massive virtue signal to try to cover for their overextended big government hand, which is still literally over the mouths in effect, I guess not literal, of little children in New York City, two-year-olds who are masked. Yeah, the Clearly, there were people who just loved all of the rules uh, to, a de- to a degree that was a little bit unseemly. Like it, it, there were lots of policies in the last two years where I thought, well, maybe I agree with that. That's you know, it's, it's possible that that might be the sensible thing to do. But but I was put off by by the glee with which people were, you know, glad to impose some of these these restrictions, especially with schools and kids where, you know, it, it was suddenly became taboo to talk about the fact that kids didn't really get sick with this very much. Um, you know, that's disturbing. I think there, there are people who just like it too much, like the rules too much. And the, that's that's not a good thing. Hmm. Well, it's like Brian Stelter. Would you go to a party right. with no rules? <laughs> it speaks for so many of them. Um, Okay, listen, when we come back, I'm going to play you Dr. Fauci, who literally in the course of a few hours declared the pandemic was over only to reverse himself moments later. It's not over. It's over. Celebrate. We finally. No, it's not. (laughs) Is anyone surprised? There's much, much more to go over, including uh, the news we just got about what we're prepared to do in Ukraine, where Matt has had some good thoughts on Russia and what our potential role should be all along. Uh, More with Matt coming up. All right, Matt. So uh, staying on the uh, on the subject of um, Fauci, literally in the course of a few hours, he said the pandemic was over only to reverse himself and say, no, it's, it's not over. It's, it's never, it's never going to be over for Dr. Fauci, I'm sure. Take a listen to these budded sound bites. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Is the pandemic still here? Absolutely. So when I said phase, I probably should have said the acute stage of the pandemic phase. <laughs> I see you laughing. It's, it is laughable. It's, 
It is. It is. And, and again, this just gets back to why you can't have YouTube or, or Google or Facebook or Twitter relying upon government officials to tell you what the truth is about something, because even they don't know. They, they change their minds every 10 seconds about stuff, mm-hmm. uh, including like really important things like whether or not to wear a mask or, um, you know, whether the the vaccine is actually going to protect you from getting infected. Like that's why you you need you. You cannot have top down uh, information controls because, you know, the truth is always a moving target. Mm hmm. I know. I feel like he just either he had a momentary slip, you know, when he said it's over. Because I don't think he's ever going to say that and really mean it. He doesn't really want that. Um, or he just got woodshedded. He said it because it's actually a fact and he slipped into factual reporting for a second there only to get woodshedded by the administration. He said, we, we're not admitting that. We have mandates in place. We're still firing people for not get, like, no, th- it's not over. Get back on message. <laughs> yeah, I think they took out the cattle prod uh, <laughs> and, and f- found a nice quiet room somewhere to uh, to to set him straight about what the official message message is. Yeah. Um, like what, what do you think is going to happen like with anyway. all the, a lot of these vaccine ma- mandates are still in place. People are still getting fired. Um, even I wonder about in my schools, we, they have vaccine mandates in our schools. They don't kick in until they're 16 years old. And I don't, I'm not there yet with my kids, but I wonder like, how do you justify that? Right. For the kids who are about to turn 15 to 16, you can't justify that anymore. You got, you got Fauci on tape saying, the pandemic phase, at least, is over. It's over. So what's going to happen? Do you think, you know, do these politicians and bureaucrats and school administrators follow through with these things? The writer Christopher Lash once said the essence of uh, propaganda was keeping the public in an ongoing state of emergency. And I, I think we've in especially in the Trump years, we've we've fallen into the pattern of always being in an emer- in emergency and politicians finding ways to, to, to find that useful. Uh, the pandemic has been extremely uh, useful to politicians. It um, has given them the ability to dictate all kinds of behaviors and to uh, allow them to stick their fingers in things like uh, the news and, and uh, internet uh, content moderation. I don't think they want the emergency to end. I think they like this new normal, you know, and and um, it, it's a problem, you know. They, they, the 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 fact the idea that there aren't people who are motivated to end crises um, is is a big problem, just generally. I think in politics. So speaking of the vaccine mandates and how they've impacted people's lives, an interesting couple of cases in the news. Um, one has to do with the mandates. One doesn't. Sage Steele of ESPN just filed a lawsuit um, against ESPN and its parent company, Walt Disney, uh, alleging that the company treated her unfairly for comments she made on a podcast interview last September. This made news at the time. She she had been one of the lead anchors for ESPN's flagship show, Sports Center. I know you're big into the NFL draft and things like that. I am not. I know nothing about sports. So I'm reading this. OK, but um, 
Since that interview, she says she's been sidelined for the prime assignments. Uh, she does continue to anchor the noon Sports Center broadcast, but th- quite a few things were taken away from her and she was pulled off the air for, for some big assignments, she says. So she had gone on former NFL quarterback Jay Cutler's podcast and shared her thoughts on ESPN's vaccine mandate, sexism in sports, journalism and on Obama's ethnicity, the fact that he selected black as his ethnicity on the census because uh, he's biracial and she she's also biracial and had some thoughts on it. So here's what she said on the Jay Cutler podcast that she's now alleging she was punished for. I respect everyone's decision. I really yeah. do. Yeah. But to mandate it is um, sick mm-hmm. and it's scary yeah. to me in many ways. Um, but I have a job. Yeah. A job that I love and frankly, a job that I, that I need. But again, I love it. Yeah. I just, um, I'm not surprised it got to this point, especially mm-hmm. with Disney. I mean, a, a global company. Like- yes. So ESPN melted down. We embrace different points of view. Dialogue and discussion are great. That said, we expect those points of view to be expressed respectfully in a manner consistent with our values and in line with our internal policies. She got hit by, of course, Jamel Hill, who just, once again, lost yet another show over there on CNN Plus. How many shows can Jamel Hill lose? Um, yeah. And then ESPN required her to issue an apology. Uh, so it, the thing about ESPN, and normally they could punish her for her viewpoints um, because they are not a government actor. But the state of Connecticut, where she is and where I am, they have apparently a law that actually says corporations can't always do that. And she's taking advantage of that. So what do you make of her fighting back against what this company allegedly did to her? This is a difficult issue for me. I'm of two minds about this because, um, you know, I I remember when uh, Liz Spade, the, uh, uh, the former public editor of the New York Times, got in trouble some years ago, uh, among other things for talking about uh, New York Times writers being on social media too much. And, uh, um, you know, I I understand the rationale for that because once upon a time, uh, you know, in in my father's day when he was on the news, uh, viewers didn't really know a whole lot about the political views of reporters. And that was, and that actually added to... uh, their their credibility like they you know if you didn't know whether a person was liberal or conservative um and they were just delivering the news it it did kind of tend to make people feel um like they were more likely to believe just that they were watching a news program Mm -hmm. however um you know nobody really is just a pure news reader anymore and, and and everybody has a social media presence so you can't I also think you can't, you especially can't punish people for, for talking. Yeah, right, especially Matt? at ESPN, ESPN they're yeah. encouraging these anchors to go out there, and they they forced moments of silence on them, and they've gotten very politically active on the air there. So why single out Sage? Yeah, I mean, and, and again, I know a lot of people in news in the news business who were who were outright told by their bosses like you have to get a. Um, a Twitter handle, you've got to have more of a presence on social media. Um, Clearly on ESPN, you know, they're trying to build up the brand, the individual brands of all of these on-air personalities. So when they do that, but they do that in a way that doesn't fit with some kind of orthodoxy, I don't, I don't think you can punish those people. I think that's, 
Uh, that's crazy. It's um, it's once again, it's viewpoint discrimination. By the way, the Connecticut right. law, just to clarify what I said, it states companies cannot discipline employees for exercising their First Amendment rights as long as the comments do not directly impact their work performance or the company. She's arguing that her comments remain on a third party podcast and that she should be considered a private citizen in this situation making these comments. The thing is, like, I don't see how ESPN gets away with punishing just her, given its push to make its anchors go totally woke on the air. And now you have one person here who happens to be a woman of color who pushes back on some of the narratives. She didn't want to get the vaccine. She didn't think it made sense. She didn't like what well, she didn't say. She didn't like the, that Obama choosing black, just to clarify what she actually said. She said Barack Obama chose black and he's biracial. I'm like, Well, congratulations to the president. That's his thing. I think it's fascinating considering his black dad was nowhere to be found, but his white mom and grandma raised him. But hey, you do you. I'm going to do me. That's why is that an unfair point? She's basically asking, why do you identify with one side of the family versus the other when it was the other that raised you? Okay, you can say I'm offended by that. I don't like that. It's, It's her POV. Same as, you know, some audience members may get offended by the incredibly woke, anti-patriotic statements coming out of the mouths of the anchors sitting on set during the big basketball games or the big football games. Uh, And we've heard that, too. ESPN has no problem with that. Yeah. And uh, what I would say is as a sports fan, um, I I don't I don't want to hear it. Like when I when I turn on ESPN, I'm, I'm turning it on. Or I used to anyway, it's because I'm looking for an escape from politics. Yeah, you know? well, that's the thing. She uh, didn't do it in the anchor chair. Unlike those right. guys, she did it in, on a podcast. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, the I think a lot of these these companies that have gotten away from um, what really works. Is, you know, sportscasting used to be a um, a really uh, you know, interesting and colorful and and creative wing of the media world because they 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 were able to write with style. They were able to use um, humor and wit in ways that regular newscasters weren't um, really allowed to do. But it's become just as dreary in a lot of ways as as the rest of media. And I don't I don't really understand why they would voluntarily do that. What did you call the Starbucks? What did you call the <laughs> Twitter <laughs> Thought now? Starbucks. Thought Starbucks. Yeah. There is yeah. Thought Starbucks too now. Nobody <laughs> wants to be that. <laughs> okay, so the second lawsuit I wanted to ask you about, I realize you're not here in any legal capacity, but they're interesting and people are talking about them, uh, these cases, is the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp defamation case. She claimed in the Washington Post that she was a domestic abuse victim in 2018. This is two years after she had uh, made sure she was caught on camera by the paparazzi with what she claimed was a bruise on her face from what she claimed was a phone thrown at it, the face, by Johnny Depp. We've had witnessed. So she's laying the foundation. I'm an abuse victim at his hands. The WAPO op-ed did not name Johnny Depp, but everybody knew that's who she meant. Um, And now he's sued her. He got fired from, uh, I guess it was the fifth installation of Pirates of the Caribbean right after that and uh, lost millions of dollars, not to mention reputational damage. And he's filed a lawsuit for defamation against her. And um, the trial has not gone well for her. It has not gone well at all. There's been plenty of testimony about how they're both hot messes and they're both way into drugs and violent and weird. But it's certainly established at a minimum she has attacked him repeatedly. And so and then that's at a minimum. Okay, best case scenario for her is they attacked each other. She did it more 
but he a couple of times may have hit her too. Uh, that's best case scenario, all inferences in her favor. That does not necessarily support, I'm an abuse victim and I've I've had the, you know, the internet unleashed against me. Is it you abused him repeatedly? You cost him the end of his finger. You you or your friend actually defecated in your marital bed. The evidence has shown. I mean, it goes on, Matt. Um, and this is Johnny Depp's testimony in court this week in part. Take a listen. Amber, I, I lost a fucking finger, man. Come on. I had a fucking, I had a fucking, a mineral can, a jar, a can of mineral spirits thrown in my nose. You can please tell people that it was a fair fight and see what the see what the jury and judge think. Tell the world, Johnny. Tell them, Johnny Depp. I, Johnny Depp, man, I'm I'm a victim too of domestic violence, and yes. I, you know, it's a fair fight. And see how many people believe or side with you. And what did you say in response when Miss Heard said, tell the world, Johnny, tell them, Johnny Depp, I, Johnny Depp, a man, I'm a victim, too, of domestic violence? I said, yes, I am. Mm. So that's her admitting, basically, on tape that she cut his finger off with a vodka bottle and him complaining about it and her kind of mocking him like, oh, go ahead. Good luck. Tell the world you're the you're the victim. And him saying, you know what? Live. I am. Yeah, I don't know. This is this, this is a tough one. Um, you know, I, I've obviously gotten in trouble over the subject in the past. And uh, I, I do understand the idea that uh, there needs to be an initial reaction that we believe women at least enough so that they get a hearing, um, you know, to not believe, but entertain. well, keep right, it up in mind. Uh, yeah, like at, at least accept the, the the seriousness of the accusation. Like initially, you, you can't, don't need your dismiss it like what, we used to, right? Yeah, which is what what happened, you know, in the past, and and that's something that definitely needs to be corrected. Um, yeah, I'm doing a story right now about um, I can't really talk about the, who it is, but there's mm. there's a there's a company that's um, you know that's gotten in a lot of trouble. Uh, and had all, all, all sorts of issues financially, uh, really over allegations and not, not really about substantiated conduct. And this is something that's just become a little bit, I think, too easy in modern media, which is, you know, we, we raise an allegation of something or we imply that some, something happened. And before you know it, you know, the, the Twitter takes off and turns it into a fact. And next thing you know, it's a reputational harm issue. And we can't have that person working at our company because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the the staff will be upset about it. Um, that's just become too easy. Like we, you know, I, I think that there has to be some kind of happy medium where you have to prove these things out before, before people really, um, you know, go through serious damage. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're not wrong because I mean, I do think like the believe all women thing was always a lie and stupid and absolutely un-American. You know, nobody gets a presumption of belief. Nobody. Right. It's it, it, the worst case scenario is you're you're charged with a crime and the system says you get a presumption of innocence because the state has such an advantage over you when you're sitting there in shackles and he or she gets to go in on the other side in their suit saying, I represent the United States of America for those reasons, because the deck is stacked against the defendants. We give them a presumption 
presumption of innocence. We want to hold the system to account before we throw somebody in jail, take away their freedom. That you don't get that a presumption of truth telling in any forum, including a court. And so I'm glad he brought this case because she really was painted as just this poor victim uh, who'd been abused by him. And definitely he suffered from it financially and otherwise, not that he needs the money, but still it's just the principle. Uh, and I think this trial has exposed that at a minimum, these situations can be a lot more complicated than we we admit. Well, and, and, and this has always been a big. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And um, this has been a big uh, issue for me over the years, which is that uh, a, a lot of reporters think that, you know, there's a playbook to, to news stories or that that you can you know, lapse into cliches when you report things. The reality is you have to clean your slate every time and approach every new story as uh, as a completely new set of facts, because, you know, what might be a Matt Lauer story, uh, you know, in, in, in one instance, you know, you, you might have a completely different fact pattern the next time you, you can't. You can't carry over expectations from your previous reporting and just kind of shoehorn in a, uh, you know, a cliched understanding of what happened. And I, I think good. that's we've gotten away from doing that, of, of just wiping the slate clean each time. That's good. It's part of our drift toward collective guilt. You know, this oh, he must be guilty. He did it. He's a man. He's a rich man. He's a celebrity. He did it. Uh, and you can't. That's just not the way life works. Uh, he doesn't have any collective guilt because of any because of his gender, because of his celebrity status. Uh, OK, hard turn now, because I do before we go want to get your thoughts on Ukraine. You've been really interesting on this whole um, conflict over there, which goes on. And the the news of the day is that Biden wants another thirty three billion from Congress for um, Ukraine emergency funding. Uh, it's a big price tag. Uh, Germany has now reversed itself on sending arms to Ukraine after claiming it, it would tap into its reserves. So some rollback from the Europeans, America sending more money. There's still some calls from Republicans and Democrats even for us to get more involved, uh, more weapons. And even still, some people are saying no fly zone and so on, though I don't think that's going to happen. So how, where do you make of where the United States is now and where this conflict is now. So, uh, first of all, I, I was one of the people that got this wrong. Like I never expected, uh, Russia to actually invade Ukraine or at least, uh, the Western part of Ukraine. And so I, I made a wrong call on that. And, and, and then you did something extraordinary. It. You admitted yeah. that you were wrong and you apologized <laughs> to your listeners and your readers which is all that's expected, but nobody does that anymore. I mean, it's, it's right. crazy. Nobody, <laughs> yeah. nobody takes accountability, responsibility. Yeah, you, you, you do. You do have to do that. But you know, I, I got that wrong, and it, it's an unpredictable situation. But I, but I think what's happened um, over time is that uh, we're not really reporting on um, what the United States is is uh, what their policy is. Uh, you know. Secretary of State uh, of Defense Austin said this, I, I thought, really fascinating thing this week where he said that, you know, our, basically what our plan is, is to is to weaken Russia so that it can't do this to the next Ukraine. Now, that seems to me at cross purposes with Ukraine's mission in all this. I'm, I'm sure Ukraine wants to, to defeat 
Russia militarily, but they may also come to a point where they just want to end the conflict with right. minimal damage. And and so if the United States um, is is committed to a different policy where we're not going to give them the the uh, um, the ability to negotiate, for instance, the end of sanctions, uh, then Russia is really at war with us, not with Ukraine. Like if 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 uh, if Ukraine doesn't have that um, autonomy, uh, then this is an, an immensely complicated situation. And I also think the United States is delusional if, if they think that this is going to end in some kind of happy regime change scenario in Russia. The much more likely uh, outcome is that you're going to get a more hardline leader uh, who's going to come in after Putin and they're going to drop vacuum bombs on every city in Ukraine. Like that, that that's my worry in the whole thing is that we're, we're, we're pursuing this um, with this sort of fairyland expectations about how it's going to end. Yeah. I was joking the other day that they, they seem to think Biden and you know those around him, that if they could just get rid of Putin, they'd get Jed Bartlett. You know, <laughs> there he is just waiting. He's dying for democracy. Just if somebody could take out Putin. I could come in with all my liberal ideas. Right. I mean, were they not paying attention in the last 30 years? I mean, that, that's the thing that's amazing to me is the United States has already been been around this track many times with Russia. I was there during this process. Like, you know, we we tried to foist you know, an America friendly leader on on Russia. And those people were hugely unpopular, mainly because they were friendly with the West. And it was part of the reason we got Putin in the first place, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, Boris Yeltsin was seen as too close to the United States. Uh, Putin was seen as somebody who stood up to us. And so we had popular backing. Um, so the, the person who comes in after Putin, if they if they think it's going to be like, you know, Emmanuel Macron or something like that, mm -hmm. they're they're high, you know, like that they, they they're not understanding what the situation really is. And I, I, I worry, you know, this is like the, the all the presidents meant thing like this is these are just not very bright guys and things are going to get out of hand. You know, mm -hmm. that's what I worry about with this. No wonder Yeltsin was drinking so heavily. Nobody liked him. <laughs> His only friends were in America. <laughs> oh, right. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you so much for coming on. And to our audience, go check out Matt's Substack now, TK News. Well worth your time, as you can see. All the best. Thanks so much, Megan, for having me on. Take care now. Don't forget to join us tomorrow. Cheryl Atkinson will be here. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.